Thomists are realists, or more properly, moderate realists. Now, the primary reference when the question of realism for Aristotle or Aquinas is usually raised uh, is about the question of universals, finding a middle ground between the absolute realism of Plato, where universals or the forms or ideas exist independently and radically separated from the world of bodies, and the claims of nominalism, that universals are simply names we use, puffs of breath meaning nothing, according to Rosalind. Aristotle and Aquinas and their followers uh, argue that universals really do exist in the intellect, but outside of the mind, only as instantiated in individual beings. Of course, the moderate realism proffered in this context requires and implies a number of commitments that would look, but that would be looked at skeptically at best by many contemporary philosophers of science. It implies a commitment to the immateriality and spirituality of the human mind, uh, uh, the soul, the mind, and, and with that, the soul, uh, and the matter form composition of all physical bodies, including us. Now, the contemporary conversation around scientific realism is also concerned with the question of existence or ontology, but in this case, it is focused more tightly on the existence not of abstract universals, but of particular concrete aspects of our scientific theories and models. Uh, in particular, uh, the you know, questions around the un unobserved aspects uh, uh, of, of those models, of those theories and models. In this paper, I'm hoping to shed some light on how, if at all, a Thomist committed to the moderate realism in the classical sense might be able to enter into the long-running and contentious debate about realism in contemporary philosophy of science. And in the process, I hope um, uh, uh, shed some light on Thomistic commitments that reveal a bit about why Thomists are more likely open to um, uh, conversation about modeling and idealization in the sciences. To do this, I will be primarily engaging with uh, the work of Anton Chakravarti, who has written a lot about scientific realism in different contexts, um, and with the particular sort of flavor of realism he has proposed. But before that, I want to look at his more some more recent work of his on more meta questions about the nature and prospect of solving the debated, the, the, this you know, long-running debate about scientific realism. So I will first touch on and describe his discussion of what he calls epistemic stances that he thinks colors the conversation and try to proffer something of a Thomistic epistemic stance, perhaps, um, with regard specifically to the question of scientific realism. Then I will try to uh, more directly, engage more directly with the particular um, way that I think Thomists, if at all, might expect to be realists about science. Uh, now looking more closely at, at the uh, particular claims that Chakravarti pro uh, proffers as, as his preferred form of realism. And finally, I will try to engage this with, um, uh, depending on time, uh, um, some aspects of uh, um, contemporary conversations about particle physics. Just as a possible caveat, I have a feeling that, um, the f so that in, in one sense, um, I'm, there, I'm going to be talking about a lot of things that are, uh, I'm talking about the both Thomistic uh, philosophy of nature and contemporary philosophy of science. So some aspects will be very familiar to um, half of you, and other aspects will be very familiar to the other half. Um, 
Uh, I'm also afraid that in the process of doing this, uh, the way I'm going to present it, it might, it might be um, uh, dissatisfying to half of you for, one, for part of it, and dissatisfying to the other half for the rest of it. Um, uh, but uh, we, we'll, we'll see how that goes. So um, beginning just uh, the, the idea of epistemic stances. So for those of you not familiar, um, uh, the, the idea of scientific realism um, or the conversation about scientific realism is the, the claim that there's some positive epistemic attitude toward the content of our best theories and models recommending belief in both observable and unobservable aspects of the world described by those scientific models. Various forms of anti-realism that object to some aspect of this broad portrayal, for instance, rejecting that science can even attain to anything like objective truth or that the language used about unobservable entities used in the sciences actually refer to real entities uh, or, uh, or, or you know, um, various forms in which you could object to the, the, the claim of scientific realism. So uh, while Chakravarti has, again, argued for a particular form of this realism that he thinks is um, his, like, the best and, and, and most uh, uh, reasonable, um, in a more recent work on scientific ontology, uh, he argues more broadly that despite the many years of debate and development around various forms of realism and anti-realism, claims about scientific ontology, which uh, what science actually tells us is real, cannot uh, be adjudicated purely on scientific, empirical, or historical grounds. Simply pointing to results of science, pointing to historical case studies aren't enough. There needs to be some aspect of some level of metaphysical speculation. This is metaphysical in the contemporary science uh, context, uh, contemporary uh, philosophy of science context, or analytic philosophy, not the Thomistic context. Um, I'll say a bit more about it uh, a little later. He goes on to develop the idea that the plausibility of a particular piece of metaphysical speculation in this context is somehow rooted, uh, can, be, can be understood as being rooted in the distance it has from um, uh, more widely accepted empirical observation, um, the, the sorts of things that we can uh, um, see with the senses, uh, balanced with its explanatory power. And the further that a judgment about such plausibility uh, 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 and the judgment about how acceptable that distance is in light of the explanatory power uh, is ultimately, he argues, in the eye of the beholder. He, to develop this idea, he, he follows, uh, it expands upon uh, uh, a notion that Bas van Frassen, a uh, particular um, um, uh, prominent anti-realist, uh, uh, the sort of dis, uh, purveyor of, of constructive empiricism, um, uh, talks about, uh, uh, talks about um, he, he himself talks about empiricism as a philosophical stance, and Chakravarti develops this notion uh, in a bit more constrained way at, to talk about an epistemic stance, with respect to, in particular with respect to the question of scientific realism. And, it, um, and so, the, and a stance here he's claiming are not particular claims uh, or ideas uh, or, or beliefs that someone has, but an orientation, a cluster of attitudes, commitments, and strategies relevant to the production of allegedly factual beliefs. They determine how human agents go about generating claims about the world that they may, that may then believe. Stances themselves are not believed, but rather adopted by people, held by them, and expressed in their actions. It's not something, so a stance is not something you believe directly. It's, in a certain sense, 
the, the, the foundation upon which you build up your beliefs in reaction to various data uh, or various observations. So in this context, we form, he argues, particular beliefs about the sci science and its claims based in part on the empirical data, models, and theories of science, but in light of the particular epistemic stance that we or, the, or an individual adopts uh, and the epistemic values that that particular stance emphasizes. In light of all this, Chakravarty thinks that there are many epistemic stances that are rational, at least in the sense of being internally coherent, and is quite pessimistic that, there, that any of the more well-established stances found in this conversation uh, can be effectively undermined or disproven, either by arguments directly against the values of the stance or by going after any particular belief about it. So while you might show that a particular belief has problematic within the context of that stance, the idea is you sort of adjust the belief without necessarily changing the stance. So out of this pessimism, though, he argues, given this reality, the nature of the debate is transformed. We can articulate our stances, put our epistemic values on the table for examination by ourselves and by others, explain how and why they resonate with us, invite others to empathize, and encourage the same with respect to our interlocutors. Now, to the Thomist, uh, I, I would guess this uh, volunt voluntarist aspect of epistemology is at least a bit suspect, perhaps. Um, uh, and on the whole, Thomists are not known for being squeamish about wading into seemingly intractable intellectual debates, anathemas in hand, ready to launch left and right. Um, that said, in the context of this particular conversation, Thomists in general, and, and I in particular, are a bit new to the table. And I think it would be wise to take advantage of the at least uh, generosity of Chakravarty's proposal to lay out what exactly is a more Thomistic stance with respect to scientific ontology. As a starting point, it would be helpful to look at uh, a couple examples of his own. So there are sort of three more concrete examples that Chakravarty focuses on, reflecting three broad approaches to scientific ontology. Um, so the first he refers to is deflationary, which broadly speaking, you know, it, it would include things like the idea that um, claims of science are completely historically contingent or socially contingent based off of social construct or just sort of a pure pragmatism where um, uh, all that science is, is, is the, 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 all that science is able to do is just be useful or productive that is not actually get, aiming for truth. And so broadly speaking, he sort of characterizes this stance with two ideas. First, the rejection of sort of traditional philosophical, i.e. A, a realist understanding of scientific ontology. Um, that it's just wrong-headed to presume that science is actually trying to say something about reality at all, and a fortiori, uh, reject the analyses of truth and reference with which they are typically explicated. So they just proffer some other explanation for what the language of science is actually doing, not in the context of truth and reference uh, as, as usually understood. A second, uh, which he labels uh, a more empiricist, um, which would include um, kind of a sort of classical, more um, uh, instrumentalist, uh, um, the uh, logical empiricist, as well as the constructive empiricism of, of Van Frassen, rejects the demand for explanation in terms of things underlying the observable. So that's the, the, the first aspect of the, of the stance. And following that, rejects attempts to answer these demands by theorizing about the unobservable. So it's broadly speaking, um, the very idea of, of, of trying to get below the unobservable is wrongheaded, and, and any attempt to do so um, uh, uh, should be rejected. 
And then he frames the third as the more metaphysical, um, which he would, under which he would include basically any of the various forms of uh, uh, scientific realism that are proffered, uh, which is to accept the demands for explanation in terms of things underlying the observable and attempt to answer these demands by theorizing about the unobservable. Now, uh, um, again, within each of these, uh, he, you know, he, he, make, he goes, it goes to pains to say that there's, you know, a lot more specificity to be made there. So within the metaphysical, you know, the, the sort of realist who is inclined to structural realism is going to have, uh, is going to end up with a different stance than one inclined to entity or, or, or other kinds of realism. Uh, I mean, with an empiricist, you can, you can, you can uh, uh, proffer that as well. But just, I want to point out, you know, on the surface, it seems obvious, perhaps, that the Thomists uh, should jump to the metaphysical and, and then try to work on that. Um, uh, it, um, you know, Thomists are never queasy about reasoning about unobservable entities. Um, uh, it's a pretty, fairly common task uh, and would gravitate towards that third and just go for it. But I, I just want to take a moment to pause and to, to, to put this in the context of saying that, uh, particularly looking at the second imp uh, more empiricist stance, because uh, we're, we are, you know, looking at this stance, not necessarily in general, but specifically with respect to the question of scientific realism and what science is able to say about reality. So while any Thomist would be perfectly happy to talk about un unobservable entities, it's not necessarily the case that they would necessarily want to follow, use, use the, the, the tools of modern science as a stepping stone to claims about uh, unobservable entities. So again, while the existence of Thomistic metaphysics, uh, uh, which presumes the existence of uh, and intelligibility of immaterial realities like angels and God, uh, the human soul, is clearly non-empiricist, with respect to the natural world, there is uh, a distinctly empiricist edge to Aristotle and Aquinas, and a certain humility about how and where we can reasonably speculate. Um, and to ex extend on this, I just want to point out, right, that uh, from a historical example, um, that for Aquinas, there were natural phenomena that could be recognized as natural phenomena, but about which we had no hope for deeper explanation, and that it was wrongheaded to try to find one, precisely because their principles were, in a certain sense, non-empiricist, were not observable. Uh, Aquinas followed Aristotle in describing that most physical bodies, or well, uh, all physical bodies are mixtures of the four elements, in that most of their active and passive qualities can be explained in terms of the particular mixture of those four elements and the particular activity of the four primary qualities, hot, cold, wet, and dry, and that these were, this was reasonable to do this because those four qualities were directly accessible to the senses. That knowledge comes to the senses, we can sense hot, cold, wet, and dry, we can recognize that and reason about the unobserved aspects of the mixture that go into a particular mixed body by recognizing the, 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 the particular way in which those, those qualities manifested. But Aquinas also was, clear, was certain that there were other natural powers. A couple examples would include magnets uh, attracting iron uh, or rhubarb purging particular humors, uh, more interesting ones like sapphire stopping bleeding or um, gold cheering man's heart. Um, so not all, not also these are great, but uh, but the fundamental workings of of, of these um, natural powers that we could we, we we could see the effect, but the fundamental workings could not be explained by those qualities, and the prince because the principles were 
inaccessible to our sensation, right? That, that magnets clearly don't work by some mixture of hot, cold, wet, and dry. And so we just don't have any tool by which we could observe, uh, like we could sense the, the, the sensible principles that underlie magnetism. Therefore, we can't say anything intelligible about magnetism in terms of its principles. We can say there are magnets, they act this way, but we can't explain why magnetism works in the way that we can explain why other common properties of metals and uh, uh, animals and plants work by a mixture of how, exactly how, how the qualities of hot, cold, wet, and dry work together. Now, again, um, we obviously need not follow these flawed conclusions of Aquinas uh, uh, all the way, but it's at least a warning to a Thomist um, that there is, an, there is a streak of empiricism in Aquinas' approach to the natural world. Uh, we need to be prepared that there may be limits on what, uh, what uh, on how what is sensed, or we should be prepared for um, limits on what is sensible to limit what we can find to be intelligible, what we can actually understand and try to, to argue about. So let me then uh, try to sort of frame in a certain sense this, uh, what I, I think is a, a broadly Thomistic stance. And I'm going to try to uh, couch this in terms of the sort of three phrases that, that um, uh, Chakravarti uh, uh, proposes in talking about stances, commitments, um, uh, added, uh, oops, yeah, uh, commitments, attitudes, and, oops, sorry, where'd it go? Uh, no, sorry, um, I apologize. I'm, all right, start with commitments. <laughs> um, so Thomists are, and again, in the, so, so focusing on this in the context of the question of scientific um, uh, um, uh, scientific realism. Um, so many of the things I'm going to put forward as commitments by Thomists are things that they have arguments for um, and arguably at least arguments that are rooted in empirical uh, claims uh, but are not themselves empirical or directly observable. Um, so Thomists, broadly speaking, are committed to the, well, not right. I'm pretty sure all Thomists, uh, I hope, uh, are committed to the idea that the physical world exists, that it manifests certain patterns of regularity and order in its changes and motions, and that human beings have some capacity to recognize and understand that order, at least in part. Um, broadly speaking, folks talking about scientific uh, science at all are probably at least open to that, um, but uh, just to, to lay that out there. Now, that said then, where we get particularly Thomistic about this, the physical world is divided up, argue, uh, arguably tiled, although said there might be some debate there, into individual natural substances. The nature of a substance refers to both its passive openness to be affected or changed by other natural agents, its matter or natura secundum materiae, uh, and the source of its own spontaneous activity, its characteristic properties and behaviors, or its form or natura secundum formale. Now again, there are Aristotelian specific arguments for why this is the case. But what I'm, what I'm claiming here is that in the context of scientific realism, if we're going to make a claim that there, are, there is some sort of unobservable entity that science can tell us something about, it's going to have to be some aspect of this kind of entity. If there is a physical thing that is unobservable and yet we can know about in science, it's going to be a substance or somehow related to substances. Um, now, with that then, we uh, recapitulate a few things that, you know, uh, um, coming from the moderate realism. So again, right, we, there, um, 
so we have uh, the nature of the substance that has this material aspect in terms of its passiveness and openness to be affected, as well as a kind of spontaneous activity, characteristic properties and activities that it, um, that, that it manifests. And so natural substances are, again, these composites of matter and form understood at various levels. And to be way too quick about this, um, uh, um, but just to kind of, uh, in certain sense, make it more difficult, uh, fundamentally, right, so um, um, a natural substance is a composition of prime matter and substantial form, where that substantial form actualizes the substance as a whole individual of a given nature and is the principle of all of its activity, is, a or is, is, is the fundamental principle of all its activity. There is a, on top of that, that's not enough, on top of that, there are accidental forms inhering in the substance, which actualize the substance to exist in a particular way. First, as existing and filling a particular quantity or, uh, first, um, uh, as, as ex uh, existing and filling a particular quantity or size, and then sort of in that, uh, uh, inhering in a way in that uh, uh, quantitative aspect, there are various qualities, certain sensible properties, or powers uh, or, uh, for activity, um, which can be distributed throughout the whole substance or localized in some particular uh, uh, quantitative part of it. Um, so, I, I mean, for some of you, this is very familiar. I mean, the, the, the broad idea here is that, um, us, you know, we, we come across a physical thing at its, at, in some sense, at some sort of um, unobservable but real core uh, the, the fundamental principle of its existence is its substantial form, but that substantial form uh, uh, necessarily brings with it certain accidental features, the most fundamental of which is going to be quantity taking up some kind of volume or space, uh, and then various qualities that, um, uh, uh, that, that um, um, manifest its uh, various properties or activities, and these can be, depending on the kind of substance, sort of evenly distributed about the whole thing, uh, or, uh, or either a property of the whole, distributed about the whole, or localized in various ways. So I have, you know, I, I am not the same color everywhere on my body, like there are different, you know, uh, that different qualities of color localized in various places. Um, uh, yeah. Now, importantly, and here I think um, uh, um, where is a point where sometimes even Thomas get a little bit, um, or can get a little uh, uh, off, or, or not as precise as they might, might, want, uh, might want, need, want to be. So substantial form is, again, the ultimate principle of activity in a substance. So if a substance is acting, uh, um, it, it, any, anything the substance does, any ac actuality the substance has, is rooted in its substantial form, but it only ever actually acts through specific active qualities and powers. So that the substantial form doesn't do anything on its own or have anything on its, it, it, the substantial form doesn't have any, um, uh, um, the, the, the activity of the substantial form is to make the thing be the kind of thing it is, and that is made manifest through the particular uh, accidental qualities. Um, the active and reactive powers of the substance may be localized in some quantitative part, again, the substantial form is still the source, but it acts through the particular active qualities located in various parts. Um, right. And then, broadly speaking, other kinds of things that people might talk about as being 
um, fun, that, that, that sometimes sort of talk about fundamentals, say events, processes, um, these are uh, 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 ultimately for the Thomas going to be grounded in what substances are actually doing um, and how they're actually acting. Um, there are various kinds of descriptions of the activity and motion of natural substances. So that's, in a certain sense, like a way too quick summary of rough aspects of Thomistic natural philosophy. And in broad sense, the kind of commitment about the nature of physical reality that Thomas is going to bring to any conversation. Where I think sometimes um, Thomists aren't as, 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 as clear is in some of what I'm going to call attitudes um, um, in terms of how it is that we have epistemic access to the substance. What is the attitude we should have towards natural substances? Um, and, and the attitude about how it is that we expect to know about uh, nat uh, natural substances. And uh, here I'm uh, um, drawing on and, 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 and referencing um, uh, the work of James Weisheipel um, in um, uh, uh, The Concept of Nature. And he says that every physical reality manifests determined properties and behavior, and it is through such characteristics uh, um, that different realities can be recognized, right? The human intellect, however, has no direct a priori knowledge of the essences or natures. It must carefully examine the sensible characteristics and behavior of natural bodies in various settings. So nature and substantial form are principles. That is to say, nature is not some complete entity within physical bodies which springs forth not now and then in its performance. It neither is nor can be known as a complete entity. Our knowledge of it uh, involves the experience of sensible manifestations and the realization that certain characteristic manifestations are spontaneously given in reality. Indeed, natures exist only in the concrete existing individual, so that our knowledge of nature in general, of any particular, uh, of any particular nature, involves the actual experience of innumerable individual phenomena. And in no way can our concept of nature be separated from these personal, uh, uh, the, uh, as personally experienced. So, per particularly Thomas of a more metaphysical bent, um, often presume at times a sort of direct access to substantial form, and sometimes it is um, Thomistic portrayals of uh, um, uh, 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 descriptions of, of the natural world are, are given as if there is some innate substantial form sense by which when we see something, we somehow immediately get access to the entirety of the substantial form or essence or nature of the thing. And that's just not what Aquinas thinks. Um, that's not what Aristotle thinks. That um, what we have access to, uh, like all knowledge comes to the senses, what we have access to are sensible aspects from which we reason to the fact that there is, the, uh, that there is a substance and what kind of substance it is. Uh, and um, just as a... Um, uh, 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 Fun, fun to uh, Aquinas quote here, just in this context. Uh, Hence, they are to be laughed at, who, wishing to correct the definition of Aristotle about nature, try to define nature by something absolute, saying that nature is a power seated in things or something of this sort. Uh, nature, um, as you know, uh, uh, with its sort of formal and material aspect, are principles. Um, they're not things inherent in uh, natural things. Okay. Um, now, this also means then that there are 
uh, the, the other um, attitude that we need to bring here as a Thomist, uh, properly speaking, is there are limitations on what the senses can reveal. There is, no, again, no direct access to substantial forms, and Aquinas repeats this in various places. Um, so uh, just as one example from um, the questions on spiritual substances, substantial forms in themselves are unknown, but become known to us by their proper accidents. And substantial differences are frequently taken from accidents instead of from the substantial forms, which become known through such accidents. So there's a sense in which it is through accidents that we know what substances are, and through accidents that we, that we um, distinguish between different substances. But there's, there's a dichotomy here, because it's not because of the accident that the substance exists, and it's not because of the accident or the difference in accidents that the substances are different. That's, in fact, an effect of the inherent difference between the substances or the, or the inherent existence of the substance. Um, and with that, then, is the just common Thomistic uh, uh, presumption or, 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 or kind of epistemic humility that we cannot attain complete knowledge of the nature of anything. Uh, sort of classic quote by Aquinas, but our manner of knowing is so weak that no philosopher could perfectly investigate the nature of even one little fly. So, um, okay, um, so, um, all right, this is, so I want to, um, yeah, so, so um, I want to skip ahead a little bit for the sake of time. Um, so the effect of a particular causal power, uh, sensible or not, uh, sorry, actually this is, uh, the, uh, the other attitude I think it's important for the Thomas to bring is that there is a power to but limit in mathematics as a tool for describing and knowing physical things. Um, substances do have inherent geometric quantity. All physical substances have some uh, uh, size to them, qua uh, quantitative aspects, and qualitative forms, and, 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 um, um, uh, and, and the sort of causal powers that are rooted in uh, these uh, qualitative accidental forms are actualized in and can often be characterized through particular quantitative parts. So, you know, there's a certain, you know, this, this portion of some object is a particular color or the activity of, you know, scintillation uh, in, uh, in a scintillation screen is, is, is located here in this place or this size. Um, and the effect of particular causal powers, sensible or not, can be quantified based on the motions those things might induce. So um, by sort of translating in a way the, the fundamental qualitative aspect of the cause into a, a motion um, that can be quantified properly uh, over distance or time, there is a possibility of putting quantities to qualities so we can describe, you know, we can talk about color, uh, um, uh, colors of light in terms of wavelengths and, 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 and uh, various examples like that. Okay. Um, so, um, so mathematical relations do reveal um, aspects, but not the entirety of the, the, uh, the natural, uh, the, the nature of any particular causal power, though, because they, these mathematic, mathematical ideas are tools to, uh, to recognizing aspects of the physical object and its causal powers, but it is not a mathematical object itself. Um, and then uh, um, the high, and then sort of the final sort of attitude would be that the, the highest 
knowledge and certainty that we can have with respect to uh, natural uh, uh, things is to define them through uh, and to know them through uh, through the causes, which in this case includes efficient causality, but the broader context of material, formal, and final causality as well. Okay, um, now I am really going to skip ahead um, for the sake of time. Um, so I sort of um, put forward this. There's a lot of there's a there's a lot of unobservable entities I've just proffered uh, as as the background for how uh, um, a Thomist uh, kind of a, a Thomist um, uh, stance. Um, and uh, but I, what what I, what I want to argue here is that um, in in the way in which that stance manifests in the particular conversation about scientific realism, there is a sense in which all of that is roughly limited in the sense that science is an empirical study working through the sorts of things that can be measured and quantified. Um, uh, we are using a particular subset of um, uh, a particular subset of the tools that Thomas might bring to bear. And so the kinds of questions specifically about scientific realism about, okay, is this particular unobservable entity that um, uh, uh, that you know, uh, you know, say you know, an electron or a proton or uh, uh, um, a particular uh, natural kind. Um, the the tool by which the Thomist is going to try to argue for that is not immediately to jump to substantial form, not immediately jump to to these unobservable entities, but is going to be primarily first and foremost through the sensible qualities that are. Uh, or, or sensible qualities and then things that can be um, uh, measured in such a way to be sensible. So it is through empirical evidence that we're going to make judgments about the existence or lack of existence of uh, uh, particular unobservable entities. Um, okay. Um, good. So again, this idea then when, when, you know, when, when a, uh, a Thomist approaches the question of scientific realism, how do they actually, in practice, try to answer these questions? It's not by jumping specific, ju jumping straight to these uh, unobservable entities. Oh. Oh, good. Good. All right. Um, it, but it's looking for peculiar effects insofar as they form um, intelligible patterns, primary patterns of observational data, um, and then accidental forms, as, uh, and, and using accidental forms as directly sensible or as causally linked to, causally linked to the sensible effects uh, in order to find an explanation for those interesting effects. So in translation, in a certain sense, what we're using as our tool in the conversation about scientific realism are what we should be looking for, first and foremost, are detectable causal powers uh, or dispositions. And this uh, so, um, so the, 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 the argument I want to make in the broader context of the stance is that while on the surface the, the Thomistic stance is going to look very strange to most contemporary philosophers of science, and the Thomistic stance opens the Thomist to asking further questions that um, uh, contemporary philosophers of science might not be inclined to ask, that at least within a certain subset of common conversation, uh, there is some, at least some potential for overlap. And in a certain sense, uh, looking then, uh, would be the second part, looking more particularly at uh, Anjan Chakravarti's sort of preferred approach 
Um, his uh, particular approach uh, is what he calls either semi-realism or elsewhere dispositional realism is to focus on very, these very causal properties as the primary um, referent in conversations about scientific realism. Um, he has, uh, uh, and so I'm um, um, going to skip over some history of realism. Uh, so he argues causal properties are the fulcrum of semi-realism. Their relations compose the concrete structures that are the primary subject matter of a tenable scientific realism. So he argues that it incorporates instincts from, from um, uh, structural realism. Uh, and they regularly cohere to form interesting units. And these groupings make up the particulars investigated by the sciences and described by scientific theories. Uh, so again, they, um, that it has, gives you access to entities, which uh, is uh, you know, an instinct coming from entity realism, um, and entities as sources of causal activity, either things that you can causally engage with or can use to causally engage with other things. And the continuous manifestation of the dispositions they confer constitutes the causal processes to which empirical investigations become connected, so as to produce knowledge of things they study. So he argues scientific realists reach beyond the observable to claim knowledge of certain unobservable properties, structures, and particulars, and by doing so, enter into these speculative water of metaphysics. So on the surface, uh, the Thomas is happy to broadly run with this. There's a way in which, at least on the surface of it, this instinct of starting from causal powers um, with uh, sort of qualities uh, uh, in its mystic sense understood as the me the, 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 uh, or the accidental forms of qualities being um, 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 the, the means by which substances uh, uh, engage in causal, uh, uh, causal interaction. Um, but there's a sense in which Chakravarti's next step in proposing this uh, um, starts to raise some questions for the Thomists. And I think this is, uh, um, yeah, and I think this is interesting in clarifying um, a kind of instinct about what a Thomist canon or, 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 or the, the um, uh, a presumption about what a Thomist thinks they might be able to say or not say about the physical reality. So Chakravarti argues or, 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 or um, uh, proposes what he calls the dispositional identity thesis, that a particular causal property can be identified as the property that it is in virtue of its relation to other properties. The conjunction, and then with that then, he argues that sort of the conjunction of all the causal laws, all the actual uh, ways in which causes uh, uh, interact, thus specifies the natures of all causal properties. Roughly speaking, what it is uh, to be a causal property is have a disposition uh, um, uh, uh, this, the, um, and that the, the identity of a causal property is completely determined by its potential for contributing to the, the, the causal powers or, or, uh, um, uh, of the things that have it. So what it is to have a particular uh, uh, causal power is just the sum total of all the ways that this causal power could relate to any other causal powers that are out there um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a rough sense. He's not saying you have to have knowledge of all of that. He thinks you, that's, you know, like we clearly don't have that. Um, but he thinks that the underlying foundation for distinguishing different kinds of causal powers is the way in which these causal powers, the sum total of the way a particular kind of causal power interacts with any other kind of causal power uh, or, or, or similar causal powers that are out uh, uh, in a particular context. Um, so 
there is something very intriguing about this um, uh, dispositional identity thesis, and there are times when I think it's very close to right. Um, uh, namely, right, it, it's an argument, uh, it, and there are a lot of interesting fruit that he draws from this um, for claiming about sort of consistent accounts of natural necessity. Um, but what I want to push ahead a little bit on is two kind of Thomistic worries about this account of dispositional identity as the foundation for, for what it is to be a particular disposition being somehow this, the sum total of all potential interactions with uh, other, other causal dispositions. And um, I think I'm going to skip my first one and jump to my second one just because I think it's, it, it's, I think, a bit more interesting and ties in a little bit with um, some of the, the previous conversation about modeling. Um, and this is that there is, there is at foundation for Aquinas an inherent corruptibility and fallibility of the physical. Um, and while mathematical relations are very useful tools for identifying and describing causal systems, causal powers are not themselves mathematical entities and can only ever approximately instantiate the mathematical tendencies. The, 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 if we describe this system of causal powers in sort of mathematical context, uh, which, which um, uh, is, is the, the mode in which Chakravarti proposes it, um, the actual physical instantiation of any of these causes is never going to perfectly match that. Um, so to illustrate this, I think it's helpful to touch on uh, uh, another Thomistic notion of how natural efficient causes can fail to achieve uh, what, what they tend towards, how it is that causes might fail to do what they tend to do. Um, so it's clear that Aquinas thinks that one obvious way that a particular kind of natural efficient cause fails is when um, some other efficient cause interrupts it um, and uh, interferes with it. And this is sort of a paradigmatic example of chance for him. Uh, for instance, right, so the, the natural downward fall of a rock is interrupted by the head of a passing wolf, uh, diverting the rock's natural uh, trajectory and possibly the wolf's very existence. Um, but and some Thomists presume this is the only sense in which there's chance. And historically, various Thomists and, and scholastics thought this was the only sense in which that natural powers could, could fail. Um, the implication being that setting aside questions of human agency, this, that nature ends up becoming deterministic. Um, uh, that uh, the only way in which a natural like, power fails is if something else interferes with it. Uh, and so if you understand how natural powers work, properly speaking, this, the system by which they work is going to become deterministic. Um, so following some I think, very uh, great work from uh, uh, Charles DeConnick in the 1930s on indeterminacy, I'm convinced that Aquinas thinks that there is a further possibility that a natural cause simply fails to achieve its ends because of the weakness of natural agents and their inability of, to perfectly actualize the pure potency of prime matter. Um, DeConnick argues that this means that for, uh, for Aquinas, uh, this, his philosophy of nature is inherently in some context indeterministic, that it's as a whole not a deterministic system. Um, and uh, that even without any external interference, some causes simply do fail to perfectly achieve the effects that, they, that, that in other contexts they might do. Um, you know, it, 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 to, to, to be a bit too gloom about it, I mean, this is a, just carrying out of Aquinas' or of, of Aristotle's idea of nature acting always or for the most part. That there's an inherent fallibility of at least corruptible natural causes. 
Now, okay, just to be clear, Chakravarti is not demanding actual determinism uh, in his advoca advocacy of this dispositional identity, identity thesis. And he's open to the fact that relations between causal powers can be probabilistic, but I think even this is too constrained for the Thomist, and this might be a point where Thomist would disagree with me, um, that the mathematical patterns that underlie the relations between various causal powers, whether we can express the, whether, whether you know, whether those can be expressed, um, uh, you know, sort of univocally without probabilities or with probabilities, um, do hold approximately. They're really darn good. I, I love particle physics and the math is awesome. Uh, but, and maybe nearly perfectly, but I think that even here there must be at least some, and perhaps, you know, uh, uh, in many contexts, you know, unnoticeable uh, imperfection of the mathematical pattern when it is actually instantiated in a physical system, in the way in which physical causes actually act. Um, and I think there are sort of Thomistic grounds for arguing for this. So I think this also puts then some fundamental sort of disconnect between the Thomist stance and any sort of hard sense of an absolute sort of semantic literalism about scientific theories that there's always going to be some aspect of approximation there, um, just built into the very materiality of matter from the Thomistic perspective. I think, again, whether that would cash out in practice in arguing about a particular uh, unobservable entity, um, I think the difference might be so small that, that I, I could sit down with Chakravarti and come to an agreement about, uh, about how, how to argue for the probability of certain kinds of um, uh, 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 entities. Um, but I think ultimately there is going to be a difference. And so the, the route in which the Thomist is going to talk about the identity of dispositions is going to be different. It's ultimately going to be rooted in, um, in not, not just in their potency, not just in what they could do, but also in what they actually are, which necessarily is connected to the substance that they're coming from. Um, we should not expect that to necessarily show up in the scientific description of what's going on, but it has a, it, it has, um, it, it colors the way that we talk about it. Um, okay, so I don't have any time to actually talk about particle physics. <laughs> I apologize. Um, just one last, just, just thing I want to say about the Thomistic stance. Um, uh, to be fully honest, right, about the Thomistic stance and putting forward the sort of epistemic values uh, um, in, in the way that, that uh, Chakravarti argues for it. I would argue that the epistemic values that Thomas find attractive in, in, this, in this stance clearly go beyond questions of scientific, or scientific ontology and, 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 and scientific realism. And in fact, I mean, I, you know, I was not uh, first or primarily convinced of Thomistic uh, uh, natural philosophy because of any particular um, uh, um, uh, 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 because it answers some question in um, particle physics that I, that, that I, that I uh, or, or some apori I had there. Um, but I am convinced that it does have value in this regime, but I have, in a certain sense, greater confidence in the Thomistic stance now more broadly construed in terms of sort of Thomistic synthesis because of its connection to and role in other intellectual contexts. Um, to anthropology and questions about the human person in ethics and most especially in theology. Um, so uh, it is in stepping back and seeing how this stance draws from the Thomistic natural philosophy and links it to the broader Thomistic synthesis 
that I am most confident in the, the kind of Thomistic stance uh, 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 towards these questions. Now, so I just put this forward as um, uh, from, you know, from, I think, the contemporary conversation, the kinds of claims that Thomists make sound strange, and they sound out of place, and, uh, and, and the reason for them can be confusing. I think there are internal ways to argue for at least the plausibility of the broader Thomistic understanding of natural philosophy, uh, natural philosophy in a scientific context, and to argue that at least on certain grounds we can be fellow travelers to a certain extent. Um, uh, but I think it's worth, you know, it's worth noting that, that not only um, uh, is the Thomistic stance open to the idea of broader unificatory explanatory power in the context of scientific realism, but it immediately opens up to a broader unificatory power in uh, uh, reality as a whole, uh, uh, philosophy as a whole, and, and theology. Uh, and while that might not be the particular, uh, 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 it, it might, that might not be important for the particular details of the conversation you're having, um, in this context of talking about stances, I think it's you know, important to put the Thomistic cards on the table with that. So um, with that, I appreciate your patience, and I apologize for going over. Um, I should know better. Uh, thank you. <laughs>